Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore applying design principles to everyday life. I'm your host and founder of Frost Collective, Vince Frost. My guest today is Usman Haq, a trained architect. Usman specializes in the research and design of interactive architecture systems, which brings together physical and digital to turn static architecture into dynamic, interactive spaces. Designer, technologist, architect, software engineer. He's been called a lot of things and his practice defies labels, but architecture is a discipline he wants to transform. Usman is interested in how we experience space and each other, and how we as people affect it. Where historically architects have determined how people behave in spaces, Usman looks at empowering citizens in their cities. He is a founding partner of Umbrellium, which designs and builds urban technologies to empower communities. A friend and a longtime collaborator whose work is awarded and recognized around the globe, welcome Usman. Thank you very much for having me. It's so cool to have a chat with you. We've been working together um, as our separate businesses in, through Sydney and um, London on a couple projects and we've formed this official partnership in May this year uh, to work together. So we're really excited about that. And this conversation really is around, I guess, understanding your passion for what you do around uh, helping kind of create smart cities, smarter cities uh, at a time when there's certainly a lot of, um, a lot happening in that area in terms of a lot of amazing architecture happening around the world and, developments and uh, a real sense of kind of designing better places and spaces for people. Um, how did it all start for you? Well, it, it that's interesting because in a sense, figuring out what the starting point is in itself a, a, a bit of a challenge. I mean, in a sense, what I'm doing now is kind of what I feel like I, I, I'm, I'm here to do, if you see what I mean. There was no point at which I said, okay, I now need to go off and mm. do this. Um, I was trained as an architect mm -hmm. and this was in the early nineties when I was studying architecture and how did I, you know, how I actually came about to do architecture also was not necessarily a strategic thing. I sort of stumbled into it because originally I had planned or in my mind, I thought I wanted to be a theoretical physicist, um, cause I was interested in, in big questions. Mm. I was interested in understanding systems and I was just interested in understanding how we make sense of our lives and our position if you see what I mean within everything mm -hmm. um, and the only reason I didn't do physics is because my father who's an economist said if I know you and I know you because you're my son you do not want to work in a research institute uh, you know you do not want to work in a bureaucracy I think you need you know you need to do something where you can kind of express yourself. And um, and I kind of stumbled into architecture. I actually got accepted for physics at university. And, Is that uh, in England? That or? was in London, yeah, London. UCL at the Bartlett. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, it sounds crazy to say this in retrospect now to think how, how much this influenced me, but I read a book the summer before I was supposed to start in physics. I read a book by Nadine Gordimer. Uh, and somehow in this book, again and again, popped out the word architect you know, architects and architecture and, mm -hmm. and I, and just, just on an instinct, I changed my, my, uh, my application or I changed, I changed I, my, my subject. I said, can I, can I do architecture instead of physics? How and, old were you? Uh, I was 19, I guess at the wow. time. Um, and, uh, so I, so I was, I was allowed to do that. And the funny thing is like six, seven years later, when I finished my architecture education, I thought I'll go back and read that book. And like, just, just for closure, mm -hmm. I couldn't find a bloody reference to architecture in the entire book and I could not figure <laughs> out where it had come from. Um, so yeah, so it was architecture that, that, that got me started and thinking about people and place and space and frankly, it was also my, um, my critique of the practice of architecture that I think got me onto this kind of road. Mm. You know, my, my frustrations with how architecture was practiced. And did you end up working in an architecture firm? I, yeah, I worked in a few different architecture firms. I uh, 
Uh, after my degree, I actually went to Malaysia. I went to Kuala Lumpur. I worked in an architecture mm. firm there for a while. Um, I was there actually for a little over a year. Uh, spent some time just doing kind of quite straightforward architecture, but also uh, ended up kind of launching a, a, a publication that that, that, we, that we called Equator. And it was this idea of looking at cities around the world mm. on the equator. So mm -hmm. KL being one and sort of um, going around and just looking at what urbanism meant to, to all those different places. And so it was, it was kind of doing architecture, but also thinking wider at the same time. I didn't know that... You'd spent that time in Kuala Lumpur because you were there last week with my guys from Sydney. That's working right. On yes. a project, which is cool. Yeah. Did they actually, know that? Uh, I I mentioned it to them when I <laughs> when you? I was there, and there were things that I remembered as well. It was ah. it was kind of interesting because, of course, you know, uh, my team and your team has worked together now for actually almost I think two years. Yeah. But we'd never met in person before, yeah. and so when we met, it was almost like we were old friends who had so much to catch up. And I was oh, like, oh, by sweet. the way, you know, I was here before, and you know, they were doing this, and hey, yeah. you heard about this, and what about that, and so yeah. So let's go. So the, what happened then? You, did you decide to move away from architecture itself? To be perfectly frank, I still think of myself as an architect. Okay. I don't see myself as ever right. really having moved away from it. Well, working um, but, out of an architectural practice, I guess. Yeah, I mean, even the way I structured the team and the business has been influenced by the different architectural practices uh, that, you know, that, that I've either worked for and kind of learned from uh, or aspired to as well. So what what type of architecture were you doing in those practices? Well, in KL, at the time, it was during the boom. So we were doing like shopping malls and mansions and, mm -hmm. you know, 40-story apartment blocks and things like that. When I moved to New York uh, a couple of years later, um, I worked on a, I, I worked for a while on, on kind of airports and things like that. And I realized I was not interested in that type of city making if you see what I mean from 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 a, from a physical structural perspective um and so this was around 96 ish and in architecture I'd had this kind of frustration with the focus on form and structure and like building hard stuff and I'd been much more interested in software and systems and these mm. kind of things and so I ended up working for someone called Claire Wise Claire Wise architect um uh, which was such an eye-opener for me because she was like, um, she is like the the kind of Cedric Price, I think, of the 21st century. Cedric Price being like one of the most incredible uh, architects, systems thinkers. Uh, and so the, the projects we did included everything from community centers to like er early design guidelines for, for the southern part of Man Manhattan to like thinking about what and designing for Battery Park City parks in the at the time this was ninety six but thinking about what it would be like in twenty twenty and having to mm. plan for that and so um, what I, what I realized then was actually this idea that architecture was in a sense systems designing as much as you might have physical and uh, uh, sort of software aspects to it it ultimately it's about getting all those things to kind of work together if you see what I mean. Mm. So what, what so what brought you to New York? Um, well, I had I had done what actually took me there. I mean, of course, New York kind of always takes one to New York yeah. in a sense. <laughs> um, what actually took me there was I had done uh, I'd, I'd built a kind of an interactive floor uh, that did that I kind of learned the way that people occupy the space and things like that. And um, this was the age of the internet cafe, and so mm -hmm. somebody wanted to commission that to go into one of New York's internet cafes. And so I, you know, in my kind of blind uh, uh, good-naturedness, I just I just went to New York to go and do it and without having a contract. Uh, and as it happens, uh, there was no project to do there. In fact, there was no cafe, it turned out. Oh, um, gee. But I just stayed because I, I just loved it. And I met Claire because I was, at the time, I was actually working, um, I was making money by helping people install AOL uh, on their computers. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be around her neighbors uh, helping, kind of, I don't know, I can't remember what it was, kind of cleaning up the desktop and installing mm. AOL online uh, and, and met Claire that way. Mm. Well, she offered you a job. She did, yeah. And she was very, it was a very small practice at the time. And I just learned so much from her. And I, and I still, to this day, 
we're you know we're we're still in touch. I still I go back and like catch up on stuff. And she's got a, a very large practice now, doing such incredible work. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a great learning experience. And then what back to London? Well, so yeah, actually, it was a bit more complex than that in a sense. I did a lot of uh, hopscotching around because I had a separate kind of career at this point as a web designer. And um, I had been attracted to webs, uh, web communities and kind of structuring the way that people interact with each other online. Mm-hmm. And so I had completely divorced from my architectural career, uh, had this separate life um, building, basically building communities online and, and building systems and platforms and like a... Uh, kind of conversational mm. interface and also kind of, you know, doing designs for, for a bank and for these kind of things. Um, and I realized that that the two sides of my life had gone quite far apart. Mm. So I was in New York. I ended up quitting my architecture and deciding to focus just on, on web because, mm-hmm. I mean, it was a big thing at the time yeah, as well. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, why don't I do this? Um, and so for a while I was just doing that and I... I realized that uh, that that also didn't didn't kind of, if you like, uh, um, kind of salve my soul. If you see what I mean, just doing that. I really mm. wanted to figure out a way to do these things together. Mm. What was the digital experience and the physical experience, and how could they be brought together? And um, so I ended up trying to do effectively the the kind of interactive environments that I'd been kind of imagining and and building earlier but not really doing them in cities mm. uh, until then and so what the, the the long detour was that i ended up basically going to japan for a year mm-hmm. uh working as um actually i was i was an invited artist in residence at a technology institute there built sort of interactive environments and things uh then i was uh uh i was invited to um, Italy in uh, in Ivrea, the Interaction Design Institute Ivrea. Before it opened, uh, I went there to to work on a, an interactive project, mm-hmm. and so then this was around two thousand one, and I and I realized that actually, okay, things are, this is actually making sense now. Interactive environments does not need to be just art. Like th- now, there was an understanding that. Um, making a space dynamic and cons- conversant and responsive to to its occupants was becoming more accepted as part of the practice of architecture, mm-hmm. and so that's when I decided to come back to London, where actually I knew there was this kind of quite vibrant community of of people um, that I'd left behind about sort of five six years before. So I came back. To, I came back to 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 Britain to to found my design practice. Uh, Huck Design plus research is 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 what what I what I called it at the time, and it was very important to me that it was design plus research. Mm-hmm. Those two would kind of go hand in hand, yeah. um, and just started doing projects like building things, flying things, interactive things, um, and uh, you know, kind of getting work partly from clients. Got some got some work actually from a, a big Korean client, but then also getting grants to do research. I did kind of, uh, I, I got funded to do a, a, a project by the Wellcome Trust that kind of ended up being written up in uh, um, a uh, neuroscience journal and like just lots of different things. Um, but which were all to me about the practice of architecture. How is it that we experience space and each other and what started becoming a lot more important to me was how do we not just experience it, but affect it? Like how, how can we have control over our own space and our own, you know, just our own way of living within those space, spaces? Because mm. historically, and this goes back to my critique of the practice of architecture, um, historically the architect has determined that sort of mm. The, the idea of the master architect yeah. has been very important. Determining what everyone does and down to, I mean, I think the uh, the cliche is like even designing the door handles and, and everything. Mm, and I'd actually so. witnessed some, like a, one of my previous bosses. I remember coming back from a meeting where he saw the hospital that we'd been working on and getting so frustrated with the way they'd reordered the, the uh, sort of re, re, repositioned the furniture 
in, in one of the rooms. And in my head, I was thinking, but they know how to operate. They need their equipment where they need it. This mm. is not an architectural project to them. They need the equipment where they need it. And, and so, yeah, so I was just thinking, okay, well, how do you empower occupants of their own environments to take control of them and to activate them and for it to become their environment that mm. they've created and that they not just perceptually and psychologically, but actively have kind of uh, brought into being. So how did you get the opportunities in that case with that new business you started? That was, that. I mean, that was hustling. That was, you know, again and again, having to pursue any opportunity I possibly could. So um, I would... I would apply for art projects. I would apply for technology projects. I would apply for psychological grants, you know, psychology grants. I would mm. apply for, um, you know, uh, I would submit to almost anything I possibly could. And the other technique I think I learned at the time was to track my time. And everyone, anyone, anyone who worked for me, although it was very small, it was like me and maybe three freelancers, any time that we put in, I would track um, and assess the amount of effort I'd put in to win that project or win mm. the funding for the project and make sure that was factored into the production budget, if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, so do you see yourself as an as a entrepreneur? Well, it, that's an interesting question because I've never seen myself as that. Design, but I have designer been... designer first? Or what? For me, yeah, I, I, am, I am a designer. But... I understand why people see me as that. It's 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 interesting because I I find that there are a lot of labels that others put on me, yeah. and I'm actually I'm totally comfortable with whatever label anyone wants to put on me. <laughs> the fact is I don't have a good label for myself. If you see what I mean, I don't. Yeah. If anything, I I mean I do. I I'm quite comfortable with being called an architect. Um, but some people who who know nothing about my architectural life see me purely as an entrepreneur. Others, I think, have seen me as a pure technologist and are really surprised to find that I have a life in the design world. Mm. Um, and then there's, you know, people in the design world, I think, who are kind of surprised to discover that, um, you know, my involvement in technology. So the label, I, I actually don't care, almost. Mm. Ultimately, architecture is the discipline that I want to contribute to mm -hmm. and that I want to affect, if you see what I mean. I, yeah. I want to transform. Mm -hmm. But funnily enough, at least in Britain, I'm not allowed to call myself an architect because of the protection around the word architect. Um, so I usually just say, I'm trained as an architect. Yeah. <laughs> but are you a, a smart city architect? Or I mean, surely you can use architect. You're a qualified architect, aren't you? No, I'm not. I've Why got not? my part one and part two, but I, oh, okay. I never actually went for my part three. Um, okay. We can edit this out if you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, people won't call you an architect anymore. They'll be totally confused. What the hell is this well, guy? Well, outside of Britain, I think uh, I'm free to call myself an architect. And certainly when okay. I was in New York, I was an architect. So. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um. So when, so Patchou Bay, how do you say it? Mm, Patch Bay. Bay. God. Can anybody pronounce that? It Japanese was a, can. It was a big issue, actually, when when we launched it. Mm -hmm. um, the naming, and it gets worse, actually. <laughs> that was the first name. <laughs> um, but it, I think it, it, it holds an affectionate place in quite a few people's hearts. So, uh, so we did hold on to it. So that came about because around 2005-06, my design practice was starting to do more projects, more projects around the world, um, and very often technology-based or, or networked, in other words, connected to the internet in some way. And um, I just, you know, w with my web design hat on and the kind of platform design hat on, I originally, I just wanted a really easy way to monitor what was going on. And, you know, it would build an interactive environment in Japan and I just wanted to keep track of, like, are the sensors working? Has something gone down? And I basically built this little widget, uh, a JavaScript widget, that would take data from physical sensors and publish them to the web. 
Um, and it was purely for our own internal use at the time. Uh, nobody was talking about the Internet of Things at the time, um, but or or it was really there was very few people who perhaps were were discussing that. But basically, there was this moment at which we had a project in Japan and a, and a project in Boston, and we realized we could connect what was going on in Japan to what was going on in Boston in real time. In other words, so the person sitting on the chair in Boston could trigger something in the project in Japan to switch on mm -hmm. uh, using this system. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine who was doing an interactive project in Hungary said, oh, can I use your data on my project? Because i got this star that has to light up. And every time somebody sits in Boston, I'd like my star to light up. And another friend saw it and another friend. I ended up basically creating a little platform where all these environments and objects could sh publish their data and grab each other's data. And, um, and it just started to escalate. So that by sort of 2007-ish, late 2007, we had hundreds of different things connected up around the world. And I ended up basically wrapping all of that into something that I wanted to call Patch Bay, basically a patch base, a telephone switchboard ah. where you could patch anything into anything else. But because I had so much going on in Japan, actually the, think, the thinking was, oh, well, the Japanese pronunciation, actually I got it slightly wrong, but it uh, would be pachibe. Technically it would be pachibe, but, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the spelling came from. Pachibe uh, became it. Um, it got bigger and bigger. Um, I spun it out as a separate platform from my design office into a company called Connected Environments, whose basic focus was on connecting up buildings and sensors around the world to share data. Uh, we became part of um, the Cisco. Cisco had a, this thing called the Urban Eco Map, which was all about smart city data. So this is where the smart city stuff mm. starts to introduce itself. Yeah. Um, it got larger and larger. We, you know, we, we, there was a whole air quality community that was building on, on the platform. Um, there was the radiation crisis in Japan following the Fukushima uh, disaster. Uh, so Patch Bay became the, the center for people to share their, their radiation sensor data. Yeah. Um, and it just kind of got bigger and bigger. And uh, eventually we were handling about 100 million data points per day from everything to do with air quality, weather, environmental, you know, urban data, um, uh, things like soil monitoring. Uh, somebody had like wired up their, their chili plant in India and somebody else was using that data to try and grow the same chili in Oregon and, wow. um, and just got bigger and bigger. And uh, that was a completely separate life for me. I was basically working two full-time jobs at the same time at that point because it was two different companies. So was that out of Japan or was that in London? They, they were both in London. Ah. Yeah. And what, what was the thing for .NET? So that that came later. Um, what happened was that Patch Bay, as I you said, got large. You sort of chronology on your, on your <laughs> CV, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah. It, yeah, they don't necessarily tell a, a, a good sequential story, no, if you okay. see what I mean. That's where we're here um, today. Yes. Unpack it. So Patch Bay, as I said, got larger. It got acquired by LogMeIn, a U.S. software company. Um, funnily enough, they just sold it on to Google uh, a few months ago. Oh, really? Um, but it became core to their IoT strategy, to LogMeIn's IoT strategy. So uh, my team and I moved over to LogMeIn. Uh, they were based in Boston, but we were based in, in London. I set up something called the Urban Projects Division uh, within that team and we were doing basically these sort of larger scale IoT projects with the IoT data platform. Um, and uh, after a couple of years uh, was when I was ready to move on to the next thing. Um, and so this is around 2013. Um, uh, I said goodbye to my friends that logged me in and uh, I reconnected with a bunch of people that, that I'd been working with previously. And I just said, like, you know, what can we do now? What, you know, what comes next? And mm. that's how Umbrellium was formed. We basically said, we don't know exactly what we're going to do, but let's have an umbrella of sorts to yeah. do urban technology, people-focused stuff. Let's work this out mm. because now the market is kind of caught up. Yep. There, you know, the the IoT is no longer a, a, a bizarre thing. It's like people are starting to talk about IoT. People are starting to talk about smart cities. People are starting to talk about how important it was that 
um, that the technology approach to cities should be very people-focused. Um, mm. And so, to answer the question where Thinkful came, up, came from, Thinkful was the first spin-out from Umbrellium. Mm. Just going back quickly, just back to Patrick Bay. Um, I'm sure I said that wrong again. And and just in terms of, like, you said you kind of, it was time to go um, and move on. But how did that feel like? Because often people start a business, certainly designers start businesses, and they, they never end. It's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a lifetime of, of that business. How did it feel like starting a business, seeing it grow, which sounded like it was yeah. rapidly grow, growing, and to the point where some big organization like, as you say, attra was attracted to, to it. What did that feel like? Did you feel like you had done your time, or did you feel like it was no longer your your baby, or it's, what was going that's on That's a there? really interesting question. Um, was the money so much you didn't care? <laughs> no, no, I had investors, so I, so I, there was quite a lot to <laughs> pay off Share, there. Yeah. Um, for me, it was not as hard as I think some people think it should have been, and that, and I think there's there's three reasons for that. Um, the first was as devoted as I am to the work that I do, and I really am. I mean, it, I am fundamentally devoted to seeing things through. Um, I'm not precious about how that is done, if you see what I mean. I, insofar as all my work has ultimately been about kind of participatory collaboration and these kind of things, mm -hmm. I've had to always accept that I do not have the singular vision for how this thing should turn out in the world. Mm -hmm. So when a company comes along and basically says, we're ready to take it to really large scale, mm -hmm. that's actually, that's great for me. It's like, you know, this, that, that's where I wanted it to go. And I do not feel like I have to be integral to that entire journey. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying this is a super easy uh, decision either, but it was it was not a tough one because I didn't feel that protective over it. And you didn't regret it as you as you left. I mean, were you straight no. into the next thing, Umbrellium? So, um, yeah, I went straight into Umbrellium from uh, after after the time it logged me in. I went straight into Umbrellium, which I do think, in retrospect, from a health perspective, was not the best idea. And I can say that now with six years hindsight. Mm. Um, but at the time, it felt like okay, I'm raring to go. Uh, to to do the next thing. So okay, well, now you got me intrigued. What happened? Were you just hit a wall or something, or are you not looking after your health? Well, I didn't really take any time off between my time at Log Me In and setting up Umbrellium. I mean, I might have had a couple of weeks, like a normal holiday, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and looking back and just seeing, um, you know, around this time, I also ended up going through a divorce. Uh, and looking back and realizing that I I I had never, in in even the previous ten years, really taken time off to just sit back and reflect in any sense strategically on what I was doing. Everything just fell in place, mm. um, and which felt great at the time, because mm. of course it really felt like the inertia was building and it was all there. Um, so it's not it's not so much that I hit. I, there was no no wall to hit, really, if you see what I mean. And certainly, mm. working with the with my partners, I think if there had been a wall, we would have kind of bust through it. Because because mm. the way that we set up Umbrellium was because we loved working with each other. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the thing that brought us together. Yeah. But w the reason I say now, in retrospect, is just you know getting to the late forties, quite tired, you know, in a sense. And wanting a bit of space to think about strategically, what is the, what is the process, mm -hmm. and maybe also to thinking back to six years ago, I mean everything everything's always the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. But thinking perhaps a bit more strategically about the kind of project that we would want to do, or the kind of ambition that we might have had, or mm -hmm. something. I, I I do think that that could have been a healthier way to do it. We we basically ended up doing, I think, quite a lot of work in the first couple of years, which was stuff we didn't really want to do, if you see what I mean. Hmm. Are you deep down optimist? I think I'm a, I'm totally an optimist. You jump out of bed every morning, we're going to go, or like... 
I no, you, I definitely don't jump out of bed in the morning because I'm not a morning person at all. You're not, you, do you work late? I work late. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm much more a late night person. Okay. Um, but I'm I'm an optimist in the sense that I I believe that the future is not written, and I think the future is scary. But I think it's not written, and the way it needs to get written is by creating it, like actually determining. I do not believe that technology is going to solve all our problems. I do not believe that things will be okay and the market will sort it out on its own. Right? It, it, these things happen because we intentionally, maybe individually and sometimes collectively, mm. decide that we want something from our, our, our kind of, our environments or our lives or what have you. And so why do you say you think the future is scary? How do you know that? Or what do you, what do you think it's potentially going to be? Well, right now, I think it's scary in the sense that there is there, and this might be totally rewriting history, but it 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 feels like historically, the pace of change was a little slower, and you could extrapolate a little bit more, mm-hmm. and every now and then there'd be a bit of a step change. Yep. Clearly, you know, uh, a scientific revolution or two here or there, and think things would change, but the pace was such that within a certain lifetime. You might only go through one mm. or two of those, and therefore, an ability to actually design and construct the kind of life we want might have been more within our reach. Now, with this, with the pace of change, but also with the ability, I think, I think for the first time ever, for the decisions that somebody might make on the other side of the world to affect you. That means that our ability to determine our future is just more uncertain. It's mm. it's there's perhaps less clarity on that. And you seem to be obviously very focused on continually evolving as a person, utilizing technology and your experience to do that for for good reason, good purposes. Like you want to make the world a better place. You seem to want to kind of improve things continuously. Do you think the general public feel the same way about that? Do you think there's is that are most people feeling that way, or is it just a few of us, a few designers, technologists, et cetera, they're thinking that way? So that, in in a sense, that's quite a loaded question. It is a loaded and it's, question, um, yeah, sorry. I think, first you of all... You can unpack it for me. <laughs> well, I was However say, way you want. I was going to say, first of all, I don't know that what I'm doing is going to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I fundamentally do not have that confidence. Right. And um, this is this is something that that I think manifests a lot in my own work. It's a combination of there are things that I am confident about, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that I know that I do not know, and I yeah. do not want to try and claim that I know. Yeah. And in a sense, a lot of the collaborative systems that that I've created have been for that very reason. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the future is. I don't know what the best thing mm-hmm. for the world is. What I do know is that um, if we figure that out together you and me or me and other people or me and like communities of people try and figure out mm-hmm. what what we want, that that in itself is a better process. Now, we might decide a whole bunch of stuff that frankly like ends up not having a future in the world. But if we made those decisions knowingly together, that would be a better outcome than simply having a system that makes a a kind of a quantitatively better decision, um, but which nobody else was involved in, if you see what I mean, mm-hmm. and therefore has no say in what that future actually is. Mm. So first of all, I'm not sure necessarily that what I'm doing is a, it makes the world a better place, but but what I can say is that that I that I would like for that conversation to be had by as many people as possible. And so yes, in my experience, when that question is thrown out, out to other people, what future do you want? You know, not not do you want to make the better place, but do you what future do you want? There's quite a variety of responses. Mm. But do you want to with everything you do, you want to create a better experience? I'm sure you want to improve people's experiences and people's lives or not? Yeah. I mean I definitely don't want to I definitely don't want to do harm. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that, that that's worse. for sure. Or or make it worse. Um it's it's simply that, and this is not me trying to avoid the question, but I think the 
something quite fundamental to my perspective on these things is that I don't know what better is mm -hmm. for another person. Right. I can't make that decision on their behalf, what is actually better for them. What I can do, though, with my skills is I can build a set of tools through which they can interrogate mm -hmm. themselves to figure out what is better and then hopefully actually execute that as well. Now, that's a really, that's an idealistic perspective, and I don't think necessarily I achieve that in everything. But the ambition ultimately is to say that I'm not necessarily the, the, the sole keeper of this expertise, but that what I can do can help somebody else to make the decisions that they need to, which I think, yes, in and of itself, is a better psychological makeup. So what's the difference between Umbrellium and Pachubi? <laughs> Why I, the other, um, you know the, the the data infrastructure community platform. Um, what's the difference? Is it is, it, is another platform? No, I mean as as kind of corporate entities, Umbrellium was specifically set up to create a lot of different things to recognize that. Um, working in and around the city and urban organizations and communities needs a very broad diversity of tools and techniques and strategies and time periods and, you know, even business models and, yeah, all of that stuff. Patch Bay was a platform. It was a specific technology platform specifically looking at um, data managing data at, at very high volumes, and most importantly, looking at what I call messy data. Because mm -hmm. I think there are now, actually, there are now loads of platforms for managing data, but they usually require the data to be quite clean and structured. And the whole point of Patchway was that it didn't require that kind of mm. structure. It was kind of explicitly based on, I mean, I think this kind of philosophy shows through again. It's kind of based on on us saying we don't know what the appropriate format for radiation data is but you're a scientist so mm. you know you structure it your own way mm. and by the way that's how thingful came about as the mm. the spin out from umbrellium because uh, around sort of 2014 ish we realized that there were now loads of platforms like patch bay uh, but there was no search engine to find the data within those platforms and so thingful is basically a search engine premised on the idea that IoT data, Internet of Things data, sensor data, is going to be messy. Everyone's going to have a different format, protocol, um, uh, networking protocol, or or what have you. Did you sell Thinkful? No, it still continues. Is that part of Umbrellium? It's a separate company. Or do you utilize it at all with Umbrellium or not? Yeah, we actually do end up doing quite a lot of projects mm. that are built on Thinkful, uh, mm. Thinkful uh, the platform. So Umbrellium, uh, you talked about it previously, and I interrupted you, sorry. But uh, Umbrellium, where did the name come from? The name is like an umbrella, but is, is it actually a name, Umbrellium? Yeah, it's a, it's a name that Doc came up with, actually, in, in my team. Um, and we were, we were actually looking at a range of similar, um, similar entities around the world, trying to figure out how to describe ourselves. And one of the ones that really popped out to me was Other Lab, uh, mm -hmm. Sol Griffith's place uh, out on the West Coast. Um, and we wanted to kind of capture that same sense of diversity in the, um, uh, in the, in the organization as well as the work we'd be doing. But we also wanted to kind of convey a bit of personality, if you see what I mean, like, mm. a, like not, not exactly a... Um, mad scientist kind of place but but that kind of idea that there was mm -hmm. that there was something a little odd going on there and that, and i think that's how doc came up with this name the umbrellium you know the yeah, as a great a, name both an umbrella as well as a the place almost yeah. if you and it was started in 2007 no umbrellium was in well umbrellium uh was launched in 2013 oh, okay but technically it's actually the same corporate vehicle it's the same company as my uh, my design practice, which was started in 2007. Okay. So Huck Design Plus Research basically expanded and rebranded in 2013 as Umbrellium. Okay, so it wasn't like brand new start. Yeah. We had we had a lot of IP, we had a, a okay. lot of inertia. Right. But it was new in the sense of a new brand, new partners, new projects, and kind of, to a certain extent, turning our back on the art kind of world that we'd been 
uh, doing quite a lot of in Huck Design Plus Research. So it's been six years since then? Yes. Uh, I think maybe even this week. Is it? Yeah. Happy birthday. And so what do you see the future for Umbrellium? Where, where do you see it going? Well, I think that the industry is in such an exciting place right now. Um, the industry, which, which industry by which I mean Our urban, the urban kind of design and technology industry. Mm-hmm. And I say that more specifically than just design because I'm talking about cities ultimately and mm-hmm. I'm talking about urban developments and things like that. The The understanding of what a smart city is has evolved quite a lot. So if you go back five or six years, I think there were a lot of cities talking about, oh, we want to be a smart city and we want to be a smart city. What, what does smart mean? Uh, you know, smart stuff. I mean, this would literally happen again and again when we are talking to, to folks. Mm-hmm. We don't know why we want to be smart, but like everyone else is smart, so we want to be smart as well. <laughs> yeah, um, smarter. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there was a lot of funding that went into early smart city initiatives and frankly did not deliver very much at all. You know, you just need to look at initiatives like Mazdar and, um, you know, even Songdo in Korea, where the technology promise didn't really deliver. I mean, you've got cities there, but there's nothing special about them. The reason people move there, frankly, was because of the tax breaks that they got because it was a new urban, you know, mm-hmm. center or what have you. Um, and in Britain, a lot of money went into Glasgow, for example, and Manchester and places like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, had varied results as well. This is, I'm giving a very long answer to your question. What next for no, Rallium? Thank God you're um, doing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what we kind of recognized was that again and again, cities would be asking this question, what impact are we getting for this investment? And those who had got a grant from central government were, were kind of okay, right? Because it was more or less... I mean, I don't quite want to say this, but it kind of felt a bit like free money as long as we can get a bit of publicity and we can call ourselves smart. That's great. But other cities that were having were facing cuts in their budgets um, and a desire to become better places uh, actually had to show real return on investment for anything technological that they did. Um, and so for the last five or six years, that has been a bit tough for us like to, to be operating in that environment because we absolutely want to deliver something for real. We do not do marketing smart, right? We are trying ultimately to 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 help empower communities through the kind of projects that we're doing. Mm. Um, and so that's largely been the way we've done work, at least for the last five or six years. Now, I think that a lot more cities, a lot more urban developments realize that doing something digital and technological is no longer just... You know, it's, it's, this is not just a, a tick box of, oh, we offer Wi-Fi, you know. That's not your digital strategy anymore. That is the bare minimum. Mm. That's your table stakes. You yeah, need yeah. to have Wi-Fi. You need to have a building management system. You need to have a, mm-hmm. you know, all of that is, 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 is bare bones. Mm-hmm. In order to actually up the game, you need to create what, what, what I've started referring to as engaged cities, not just smart cities. Smart is basic. You need to have an efficient you know, whatever, mm-hmm. transportation strategy. You need to have an efficient approach to your environmental strategy and air quality and, and what have you. But actually getting people to feel like the city is theirs and that they have a say in it and they can make decisions about it and that the neighborhood feels like theirs and is actually safe because of that, that's, that is the game changer for a city. Um, and so that's basically, you know, the, where we want Umbrellium... Uh, to be positioning uh, the kind of projects that we do. It's that actually this is as technological as what we're doing might be. Ultimately, it is about people, space, place, and meaning and kind of activating uh, activating space because people feel like it's their own. It's not something that they're just inhabiting for Mm -hmm. a temporary period. I think that... One of the things that attracted me the most to you guys was that project you did with uh, the insurance company, Direct. Direct Line. Uh, Direct Line. Mm. And absolutely brilliant. And it's been written about all over the world and it's got a lot of attention justifiably. Is the, how do you call it, the interactive uh, crossing? Uh, yeah, Starling crossing. crossing. Yeah. yeah, pedestrian crossing. Talk a bit about that because um, 
I think people would find that fascinating. So the Starling Crossing was, you know, I'd been thinking about streets for a while and how they might have to change with more and more autonomous vehicles in them. Mm -hmm. Um, And also thinking about the fact that uh, two things. First of all, that if the roads are filled with autonomous vehicles, you can actually cross anywhere in theory because the cars should, in theory, if if the technology is all kind of working, which, by the way, is, of course, a big question, um, should just seamlessly flow around you. Mm. Uh, so that, that, that was one aspect of it. And then the second thing that I've been thinking about is this, this idea of shared space, which is a lot more common now in cities around the world, which is the idea of streets and pavements blending into each other mm. and actually creating safer streets because all the users of the streets, whether it's pedestrians or vehicles or cyclists, kind of necessarily have to be more aware of each other. And so these have been trialed in a number of places. Exhibition Row is uh, probably the best-known London shared space. And I was just wondering, like, how how would these two things interact or intersect? And more importantly, like, how could you put pedestrians in in a in a position of power in that in that that kind of context? Um, and so we were approached by Direct Line to start to think about the pedestrian crossing, which of course, has not been updated, at least in Britain, for about mm. 50, 60 years, even mm. though our experience of the city is completely different to the way it was 50, 60 mm-hmm. years ago. And certainly our, our kind of desire to cross the road at different locations is is markedly different. Yeah. Um, and so the project came about basically saying, okay, what would the street look like if it responded to pedestrians? If the pedestrian crossing would appear where people actually want to cross, where they continually cross, and more importantly, which is in the location that's safest to cross. And the safest place to cross might be different in the morning to the afternoon when mm. school lets out, to, which would be different maybe size and orientation to late night when the film cinema lets out, mm. the last show. Yeah. And how could we create a, a street that would be able to dynamically remap where that crossing is and expand and change and maybe even change over seasons? Um, and as with all of our projects, it's absolutely vital for me that we build the thing we imagine. Like, I don't, I don't care about the idea if you can't actually execute on it and put it in the real world. And so we focused on how do we build a, basically a huge interactive street surface, which is effectively operating like a kind of big computer screen, if you like, mm-hmm. um, but which can take the weight of vehicles that can, you know, operate in the glare of sunshine, that can, that's waterproof in, in downpours, and most importantly, where you could start to build up a whole visual vocabulary for an interactive pedestrian crossing that people are, can intuitively understand and respond to. Because the worst thing you want to do is create a, a video game on the street, yeah, yeah. you see what I mean? Where did you build it? So we built it in South London. Um, we set it up there for about a week. Uh, we actually created a, a, a good, I think it was about 20, 30 meter long section of road. Um, we set up our cameras with, a, basically there's a neural net behind them classifying all the objects and predicting where they're going to be, whether they're you know, pedestrians or cyclists or vehicles. And then we just started like running tests and having vehicles go back and forth and mm. have people interact with it. And we sort of adapted a little bit and learned a lot from that process. Wow, um, that must have been so cool. Yeah, we had a we had a great time. I mean, I, I love being on site anyway, but even better, I like using the site to start to learn, if you see what I mean. Um, I mean, it's been written about a lot. It's, it's all fast company and, and, and publications like that um, covered it. But has anybody uh, anybody applied that to any real life exper- uh, real life place? So we have had a ridiculous number of inquiries from around the world, um, and uh, so there's a massive demand to actually implement it. The most important thing to figure out with that, though, is the maintenance and the logistics of deployment, and so that's basically what we're working on at the moment. Where where we're, we're working on that kind of next step to turn it into that kind of thing. So we do have a a, a kind of a a, a real world um, implementation of it, which will be over a period of several months coming up, hopefully in the next year or so. Mm. That's a big thing. Where a lot of designers are have ideas and are passionate about ideas and all that. A lot of people I have in my head all the time, but 
there's so many ideas that don't get realized because not knowing how or getting sidetracked or onto something else, a real-life job. Mm. It's cool to see you kind of took that opportunity and delivered on it. You prototyped it. You made it. You walked around and you tested it, et cetera. Um, that must give you so much more confidence to do, to be able to tackle anything, doesn't it? I mean, when you start doing things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... Or do you still walk around with a whole bunch of ideas in your head that haven't been realized as well? Well, I think I think there's two sides. First of all, it doesn't make any sense to me if, if I'm not going to build it. That was actually the, the, the starting point for Patch Bay as well. You know, when we started thinking about, oh, you know, everything could be connected around the world. It was like, okay, nice idea, but how do you actually execute mm. on it? Um, uh, the second thing is that when it comes to an idea, actually, I say this to my team all the time. The idea, no matter what it is, does not have value in and of itself. It's mm. almost impossible to say this idea is better than that idea if you haven't like, had it impinge itself on the real world. Mm -hmm. um, and so actually our whole process is always about taking, I don't care how crappy you think the idea is, like just try something, mm -hmm. some little prototype, even if it's just a little cardboard something. Because mm -hmm. you will find out that that idea you have in your head, it's actually different in the real world. And so, um, so for me, that is the most uh, kind of exciting part of the design process, actually, is manipulating and changing the idea as it hits the ground. So, yeah, I've got loads of things floating around in my head all the time. And almost, you know, every time I see something, I think, oh, that could be just a little bit different over there. And that'd be mm. so nice. But I know that... Once I put my mind to it, it'll turn into something quite different. So, and that and that visualization, that realization of an idea, even though it was a prototype, when the rest of the world sees it, as opposed to you talking about it, it excites and stimulates them and creates further opportunities for you, right? Further opportunities, and and but also for me, it's this question of like, let's decide our future together. Let's mm. figure out what we actually want. When you build something and put it in the real world. And you actually manifest, this is, this is what it would look like. Mm. What do you think? Mm. Like, do you want this? Like, how do you want it? How should it respond to you? It sparks actually the important questions, if you see what I mean. Because I could easily say, hey, you know what? In the future, we're going to have dynamic streets. And you'll be going like, yeah, sounds great. But when you see the thing there and you can actually see how it responds, then you, it raises so many other kind of more valuable questions. Mm. How do the visually impaired use this dynamic yeah, yeah, street? Yeah. You know? What what value do we put on the the requirements of one user versus another? Like, do you, do you know what I'm saying? That's mm. where actually the ideas get so much more exciting because you you end up having to think about the variety of experiences and kind of almost like I mean, there's a whole side conversation about a critique of the way that technology is done. But very often, when you're designing a technological proposition, you, you take the ideal situation, and then all the messy stuff on the edge is known as an edge case, right? You kind of like, you, you do the thing that works 95% of the time, and then you do a hack to do the 5%. Mm -hmm. For me, that 5% is the most interesting part. Mm. It's like, let's design for that 5%, because the rest of it's easy, mm. right? But getting the thing to work for, you know for say somebody in a wheelchair or to you know getting it to work when somebody doesn't have a bicycle but they have uh you know one of these big trikes or something you know thinking yeah, about yeah, yeah. the complex thing brings that is is i think where the poetry and kind of lyrical aspect almost of a technological proposition really comes to life mm. I, was, I was talking to my sister down in sussex um uh, about this and you can't you're sitting in Stenning in Sussex which is quite a beautiful little kind of country nice. town with horses riding through the high street I've been through it and I was, I was trying to imagine <laughs> I just try to imagine your you know pedestrian crossing there um, the chaos that it would create and yeah. the intrigue um, but my sister talked about oh my god oh my god this is like the Jetsons and, and I'm going <laughs> well yes how yeah. old is the Jetsons it's probably the 60s 50s yeah, yeah. I mean, the Jetsons was something that was created from someone's imagination. Yeah. And this is all about realizing ideas, imagination, dreaming. Yeah. And it's interesting how, when you look at that sci-fi or the Jetsons as an example, how such a long time ago we were thinking about kind of really the things that are being implemented today. Yeah. 
It seems to be a massive That's gap right. between then, which was cartoon land or fanciful thinking, to reality of today. Exactly, exactly. Um, what happened? Why, why did we have such a, a large gap in between then and now? Because now it's become, becoming, you know, they started to implement uh, such things. Um, well, it's I taken think, a very long time. We sent people to yeah. the moon, but we haven't, you know, there's been a big gap between then and and now. I think, you know, w what it takes, though, is not just a technological um, transformation. It's also a social transformation. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and these those kind of things take time. Um, I'm reminded of something that um, one of my kind of mentors uh, said, uh, Tony Dunn, in his book, Hertzian Tales, um, said something along the lines of, you know, we can now almost build whatever we can imagine. Mm. You know, it's yeah. we can now kind of execute on that. So now it becomes fundamentally important to really think about that the, those sort of wider societal or even metaphysical issues about what do we want from what do we want from our futures. Mm. And nothing needs to be permanent either. That's like right. It's a thing. It keeps evolving. It's the revolution um, that keeps being made almost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an incredibly exciting time and scary, as you say. Yeah. Uh, for all of us, uh, even us optimists, um, <laughs> because you want to make the right move, you want to do the right thing. Um, I guess for in in the in the in where you're working, you can because it isn't permanent necessarily. You can kind of prototype it and evolve it and keep evolving it. Um, I mean, what would you? What would be your ideal? Is there an ideal future city? What will London be like in 30 years, for example, if it implemented all the things you believe it should be? Again, I would, I would kind of push back on the on the question because I, I I really do not hold on to that vision, if you okay. see what I mean. Yeah, fair enough. Um, which, is, which is not to avoid the question, although in a sense it, it partly is. I mean, this is a bit of a manifestation of my personality again that... Because I, because I, I have been caught, I, I have been called out actually in a, in a, in a public lecture once where where somebody said, um, "Look, you you know, are you just doing all these collaborative projects because you don't have the confidence to say <laughs> what it should actually be?" Yeah. If you see what I mean, and I, I I think perhaps there is an aspect there, um, but like I I I just feel like designers, of which I am one, have historically taken too much of an active role in trying to, to determine on on behalf of other people uh and and typically people who are not in power to make those kind of decisions if you see what i mean um and i think that now especially with the kind of uncertainty of the future um and the, and and this this is both i think within a city as well as within an organization thinking about actually what you know how do we bring about a sustainable future is fundamentally got to be based on a vision that's shared by lots of people, mm -hmm. if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Now, it might be my job within a project to help build that shared vision. Mm -hmm. And typically, I would like design or produce a platforms or an environment or what have you or an experience in order for people to build up a vision or perspective or, or something or, or maybe even not to have a shared perspective but to be able to collaborate even though they haven't got consensus yet that is that is my vision mm. is having those kind of yeah. things in place so that um so that that future wh whether it's 30 years or whether it's like next week other people can make those kind of decisions so i mean i guess, I guess the, the the short answer to the question like how would i want to see london is i would want to see people much more actively involved and feeling empowered in the decision making, whether it's at the kind of neighborhood level or at the kind of urban level, um, about making decisions about how their city is theirs. How would you feel if if that collaborative effort, there was, uh, you know, half of that involvement of the people involved, their vision of what it should be was very to how you feel it should be? What if you thought it was compromised? Would you just go along and still do the best you could with that situation, or would you, you know, fight that? I would consider myself, like everyone else, a a citizen in that debate, and I would like to think that I'm that I that I'm informed in certain areas and and in certain areas. So I definitely robustly defend what I think it should be. Um, however, I'd like to think that 
that um, that again, this kind of, kind of comes back to the, the 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 notion of not being too precious with ideas. That that mm. if there's something that others actually think is better and certainly at scale think is better, mm-hmm. then, I, then I'm all for it, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exciting to see your team grow and see that, you know, just met Andrew for lunch today, which is mm-hmm. really cool, your business partner. He's flying off to China to do a, a lecture there. You're flying off to South Africa tomorrow. Exactly. Um, it, it must be incredibly exciting to be part of, out of London, but part of the global community around the future of cities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's... Uh, it, I, I've sometimes referred to my team as kind of the Millennium Falcon. You know that that we, you know, we we just love going around, finding ourselves in new experiences, new contexts, and as much as I'm reluctant to, I like I, I'm very reluctant from a technology perspective to parachute in to say another city or another community and sort of say, hey, here we are, the experts. You know, we're here to solve uh, what you're doing. However, it feels like the the thing that we offer is I think my team tends to be very empathetic, if you see what I mean. Mm. And so we love going to other contexts and other places and other cities, mm-hmm. listening a lot, and actually, you know, actually being quite robust in our critique or our or our idea of what what should be done, but very, very open and almost nurturing of what's actually happening on the ground mm-hmm. and an, an understanding that the knowledge actually rests over there, not, yeah, yeah. not in us. And so, so for us, operating internationally is fantastic because it's, it's, we also see great opportunities for learning from one context uh, and applying it somewhere else. So, mm. you know, s- s- something that, that, that we might have seen in a Singapore project that actually applies in Manchester, for example, um, both from a technological or technical perspective as well as almost like a psychological perspective. In your experience of seeing the world, what, what city do you think at the moment is leading that? Um, I think Barcelona is a really interesting place. They're, you know, they've been, been through a bit of um, political transformation, but they also have this very uh, uh, robust engagement strategy, like a, from a technology perspective, um, a, a kind of digital strategy for not just kind of creating, if you like, the, the, the typical smart city, but actually creating a level of um, citizen participation that underpins everything else. So in other words, from their kind of, I forget the name of their, of their kind of technology office, but um, their remit has largely been to involve people not just to procure technology, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like, how can you get somebody in? Uh, how can you get this community involved in air quality? How can you get them involved in participatory budgeting? How can you get them involved in, you know, design, des- uh, uh, what they were calling fair B and B as opposed to Airbnb? Mm-hmm. You know, these kind of things. So Barcelona is very interesting in that regard. Well, is that take? Is that just from a, a visionary government, or what's what's kind of driving that? Uh, I think it's been partly that they had um, they had a, uh, a kind of a, a city CTO, um, an architect was uh, w- w- was actually in in that position a few years ago, mm. and now there's a CIO uh, Francesca uh, Francesca Bria, um, who's also got that kind of uh, that vision. So I think I think it's been a it's been a bit of a momentum that's been building up over several years. Mm. Do you think with all this And a strong mayor as well. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, do you think with the whole Brexit debacle that's going on now, London will be hindered by Oof. The, its growth? Oof. Or its... The, the impact of Brexit is, is very difficult to say, but I think that one of the, one, one of the, the, the biggest issues is just the uncertainty. What, what's going to happen in terms of economic development, investment, you know, investment in, from the UK outwards as well as inwards. And so that's where, yeah, all bets are off, at least yeah. for the next couple of months. I mean, probably like, I just feel like there was so much positive momentum until now. Mm. You know, London was changing dramatically in the last, what, 10, 15 years. Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem like it stopped being here, by the way. It's still no. amazing positive yeah. energy around. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm very, as I said earlier, I think I'm an optimist. And so I think that, Largely, 
largely things will be okay. My my concern is just that the that the the people and businesses that that are that can least afford it will be the most impacted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if we can mitigate that in some way, all the better. What's your elevator pitch for Umbrellium when you meet people? You know. Well, we are basically trying to use technology to empower communities, to make them feel as though they can achieve more uh, than they can on their own, um, and to transform their experience of of their own buildings, neighborhoods, and even cities. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And a question I ask everybody at the end of a, the podcast is: Do you feel you've designed your life? And you don't have to. You don't have to answer yeah. yes. <laughs> But, well, but, you know, be honest. Honestly, you know, I, I I kind of referred to this earlier. It feels as though things have kind of happened and fall fallen in place. And yes, I am very, you know, um, aware of decisions and decision making, and I've tried to operate as if I were designing what comes next. But ultimately, I think in retrospect, I I have not necessarily. Uh, been as conscientious about designing my own life as I think I have been about designing other things mm-hmm. in life, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. How do you keep well? Uh, I I play a lot of music. I've got a sort of a separate life as a musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that play? is, uh, I play a bunch of different things. Uh, um, my primary instrument is probably piano. Mm-hmm. Um and that is a separate life almost. I actually go under a slightly different name and um, uh, and I sort of release under a different name. But I do devote actually quite a chunk of my uh, waking life to that. And my sleeping life, actually. I do uh, dream in music. So anyone starting out in business who's got ideas and a big idea for um, creating a business, a brand, et cetera, how would you, what would you recommend they, how they go about doing that? I think that my my advice would be, okay, you've got an idea, that's great. Um, try and think about the the smallest thing you could do to start to test that idea. Do not wait till you have funding. Don't wait until the environment is right or the conditions are right or or what have you. Do whatever you can, whether that's you know so-called user research, mm-hmm. or whether that's like some kind of prototype that you can put in front of somebody else, or whether that's you know um, you know something that you have to build or even just mock up. Anything you can do to test that idea, and fundamentally to test the bits that you're most uncertain about, uh, is the, is the best way to go forward. Mm. That's actually really great advice. So many people have a big idea that they wait for that, you know, the big money or the ultimate moment or wanting to make it perfect before they start. Starting just by trying something, sketching, you know, ideating, prototyping, doing it with minimum investment. I think that's yeah. a brilliant idea. It's it's one of the best returns on investment you can do because yeah. you will always learn something when you put something somewhat tangible in front of other people. Cool. Well, Usman, thank you so much for today. It's been such a pleasure to catch up with Likewise, you. Likewise, it's fantastic finally to be in the same room together <laughs> yeah, and then exactly. to be able to kind of <laughs> see each other yeah, across yeah, the table. Yeah. I think the last time we spoke was like three, it was your three in the morning, wasn't That's it? That's right. Exactly. Yeah, we were, we were doing a pitch. <laughs> yeah, Skype in Melbourne. But uh, thank you, my friend. Likewise. Cheers. Thank you all for listening. If you want to find out more about Designing Your Life, head over to our website at designyourlife.com.au or on our social media at Frost Collective.